Today's program is brought to you by Campari. For more information, visit Campari.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I do want to let you know that for just a few more weeks, I will be at Alta Linea. Uh, we're going to be closing for the season on October 9th. Uh, if you come in between now and the end of September, we're going to be offering 25% off for all of our wine by the bottle and 50% off from October 1st through October 9th. So uh, let's raid, uh, raid our cellar and, uh, and we'd love to see you before the, before the season ends. Um, This is also our, our first show back for the fall season. Uh, I guess technically uh, tomorrow starts fall, but uh, this is our, our fall season show back and uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, we have a great season ahead for you, a bunch of uh, awesome people, uh, Michael Engelman from, uh, from The Modern. Um, we have just a bunch of, of really interesting people, Jorge Riera from, uh, from Contra and Wild Air. And uh, today we have a great show for you. We have Adam Leith Golner, who uh, is a contributing editor for Savoy. He's uh, an author of uh, several books, including The Fruit Hunters, um, uh, and uh, he's written just an amazing article on the origins of wine. Where does wine come from um, in the October-November issue of uh, Sever? Um, uh, Adam, welcome to In the Drink. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Um, so tell us, uh, how did your interest in uh, wine, an ancient wine in a uh, an ancient cave in Armenia. How did that uh, your your interest for the story begin? Well, I guess like anybody, I'm kind of curious about where things come from, and in particular, wine is something I've been exploring more and more and drinking more and more of, and I guess the real beginning of the story for me was with my first book, The Fruit Hunters, which was about fruits and how humans and fruits evolved together, and grapes, of course, being the key ingredient in wine, I I noticed that during the course of that research that they have a place of origin, like grapes come from in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in and around Armenia, eastern Turkey, northern Iran, Georgia, in that area. And that's the like kind of place of origin of grapes. And it's also the place where they were first domesticated. So there's like this great variety of them to this day. And then about a few years ago, some wines started coming onto the marketplace from that region. And I was kind of amazed to see that the, the those grapes that I'd read about were still being made into wines in that ancient way. And, and so basically the, the real kind of, I guess, thing that, that, that got the wine story going was the fact that the wines of Georgia started becoming available in restaurants in North America. 
and Europe. And so, and they're, they're quite astonishing wines, you know, these orange wines that are cloudy and full of character and oxidative and aged in these underground crevry amphora vessels as they were done thousands of years ago. And then a discovery was also made in Armenia next to Georgia of a cave that contains the oldest winemaking, intact winemaking equipment known to history. And, you know, they have these 6,100-year-old clay vessels in the ground and great remains, and they were making wine there, you know, when we were still basically, you know, in, in, the, in, that, in the Neolithic Revolution. And so, I, you know, that's I, the, the opportunity came to go check out that cave. And I said, of course, I would love to. And that's how the story happened. Yeah, I mean, we think of wine as something that, is, that uh, helped usher in formal society. And, uh, and, uh, but this was really cavemen making wine at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that way, um, but it's true. You know, we were hunter-gatherers, and we were nomadic, and this winemaking occurred very near the Fertile Crescent, where humans first domesticated crops, like wheat. And, you know, there's there's debate in the world of um, of archaeology and uh, about whether we first started domesticating grains to make grain or to make uh, to, to make bread or to make um, beer. And, you know, was it for alcoholic beverages or was it for bread? We don't really know. That's, a, that's a, a continuing debate. But right beside there, you know, right beside where those first grains were domesticated is where our ancestors, our nomadic ancestors, started domesticating grapes, the wild grapevine. And the only reason they would have done that is to make wine, to gather the, enough together and to, to kind of, perhaps at the beginning they did it to return to the same place and make wine, but then they settled down there. And so we're going back to the roots of humans stopping their nomadic itinerant ways and becoming sedentary and adopting uh, agricultural lifestyle, which is what we talk about when we talk about civilization and how civilization began, it's really you're right in there. Yeah. And what's so special that you write about, about this, this cave, um, which I, it's Areni-1, or do you say Areni-1? Yeah. Areni-1, uh, Areni-1 cave. What's so special about it is, is the kind of intact nature of what they found. So there are other kind of fragmentary remains that the archaeologists have found elsewhere in that region, in, in Transcaucasia. And like there, I was in the Republic of Georgia, and you can see like these, if you go to the, the museum in, in Tbilisi and you go back and you speak with the archaeologists, they will show you these little match boxes they have of tiny grape seeds that they've collected in these these ancient Neolithic sites. And they believe they're the earliest examples of the domesticated grapes. And, you know, that's that's one thing, you know, to see these tiny little, you know, carbonized, almost like fossilized pips 
But this is like actually like a winery. Like it's there. It's got all these like fermenting vessels and a wine press. It's like it's all preserved. And it, what it was was it was covered under like layers of of dung, apparently. Like I think it's sheep dung, like millennia of sheep dung preserved it. And then these people found it, dug it up, and were like, oh, my God, this is, you know, this extensive find that demonstrates conclusively that humans were making wine and in what manner in that region at that time. So that's what's so important about it is it's, like, really intact as opposed to these little shards of fragments of evidence that you find elsewhere scattered around that region. And together they help paint a picture of how, how winemaking began and how that kind of made us human. Yeah. I, I'm actually uh, maybe one of the few people in New York who's also been to uh, uh, that uh, museum in Tbilisi uh, <laughs> five yeah. years ago. I went to the first International Quevery Wine Symposium. Um, <laughs> so there you is, go. Which always blows my mind. Because, you know, they've been making this wine in Quevery for thousands of years, and uh, which yeah. are these, you know, their name for the amphora clay pots um, yeah. uh, that we we kind of think of in in more in Western Europe. Uh, um, mm. And this was the first time that they'd ever really uh, had. Uh, uh, to, you know, come together and, and studied it uh, and, and did an international sort of symposium on it after after all these years. I thought that was that was funny. But what I noticed in Georgia was that you had these people making wine in this very very traditional style, um, yes. and then exporting a lot of wine that was made in a more modern style. And it was just a few years ago that the Quevery wine. This old style from indigenous grapes and made in the quivery was was uh, exported. Did you notice that same thing in Armenia? Because I know you know Armenia, Armenia does make a, a decent amount of uh, of wine that had been going to the the uh, to Russia and the former Soviet yeah. Union. And um, uh, what what was the sort of the state of their winemaking? At this point, this is such a such a good question, and it's really what I was curious to try to find out more about, you know, I think that as you, as you so rightly point out, it's such an exciting time in that region, you know, just five years ago, the first Crevery Symposium, you know, and, and those, those wines that are being made in that traditional way are starting to become available when they weren't, you know, as you say, the modern ones have been exported. They're more technological and maybe they use, you know, international varieties, but those ones that really have that sense of, uh, of place, which I think a lot of us wine lovers are looking for, um, that's something that so, feels so recent that it's become available to us. And so I was curious about where Armenia is in that, in, in their progress there. You know, Georgia has like a really strong foundation of those wines being, being made domestically, but not being exported, right? They all consume those Crevry wines at their all-night feasts, and it, it's, it's just always been like that. But what about Armenia? You know, do they do that as well? I was so curious to try to, to find out. And it turns out that Armenia is not the same situation as Georgia. 
it is not a place that has this unbroken winemaking tradition that is so dear and close to the hearts of of Georgians. Armenia has had its winemaking tradition continue, but it was largely broken by the communist era and even the tsarist era before that. So during the pre-communist tsarist 19th century, Armenia was decreed to be a brandy-producing country. And they said, you guys and your grapes will be distilled and turned into brandy. Whereas Georgia, you guys and your grapes, that's going to stay wine, and we're going to drink your wine. In Armenia, we're going to drink your brandy. And as you probably know, with many of those former states in the USSR, you know, they really specialized and different countries produced different things. And even though they still had their grassroots winemaking going on, most of the grapes ended up being used for brandy in Armenia. And that's still true to this day. It is mainly a brandy producing country. Um, the, 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 the figures are, are kind of astonishingly high, like uh, 95% of their grapes that are grown on a commercial level, 95% of the grapes are used for spirits. So that's very different from Georgia, where Georgia has, like, just, you know, you go there and it's you're awash in wine. Whereas Armenia, most men there don't even drink wine, and they think it's weird to drink wine. They're, they drink vodka, and they drink a lot of vodka. And they think that drinking wine is something that women do, which is, you know, we're like, wow, what a weird way to be, you know? And the first ever wine bars in Yerevan have opened up in the past few years only. And the clientele is mainly young and mainly female. Now, that, you know, when you have a mainly young and mainly female clientele, that, that demographic tends to attract men who, you know, are starting to kind of catch on that, you know, wine is uh, uh, an acceptable beverage. But still, the consumption of wine there is really low. And if you look at how much, like, the wine per capita is consumed in Armenia compared to Georgia, it's, like, way lower. Like, Georgians consume, like, more than 21 liters of wine per capita a year. Armenia is 1.6 liters, and they consume five times more vodka than that per capita. So that's when you, when you talk about Armenia and what's going on there today, what you really need to say is it's a place that has only just rediscovered its viticultural heritage. And what it is, is it's a place that's full of potential. The potential is not yet realized, but they're going there. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to, to rediscover how these wines are supposed to be. So it's really kind of an exciting moment where nobody really knows what Armenian wine is. And so there's all these people trying to figure it out and working at it. And some people are doing it in a more modern way, in a more technological way. There are some rustic wines. A lot of them, as you mentioned earlier are made for that Soviet market. So they're sweet. And, you know, in our world, sweet red wine isn't exactly what, I guess what you would say, Western Europeans and North Americans are looking for. 
So they've only just started making dry red wine over the past decade, essentially. And that's early days. So it's, it's very different from Georgia, where you kind of have this deep-rooted kind of everyday backyard feasting tradition where everybody drinks the wine. Armenia is like a new, it's like the newest wine country, but also one of the oldest. And it's very, it's very fascinating because of that potential. Fascinating. Um, and we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, an American winemaker who you profile in your article and, uh, and his, uh, his journey to help uh, rediscover that uh, ancient Armenian wine right after this. This one is called Carried Away by the Hollows. We'll be right back. When you talk about Campari, one of the first things that comes to mind is the inimitable and ubiquitous Negroni cocktail, a favorite of Heritage Radio Networks. Joe Campanelli, host of In the Drink on Heritage Radio, talks about the interesting history of the Negroni cocktail. The, the classic Milano Torino, which is better known as the Americano cocktail, which is Campari, good red vermouth. Use good red vermouth like Carpano Antica formula, Contrado, Cocchi Vermouth Torino, one of those, and soda water. Then later on in its uh, history was transformed into the Negroni, which substituted good gin for the soda water, something a little bit stronger. Count Negroni spent many years traveling the Midwest, the Southwest of the United States, found a penchant for strong drinks, and later went to London where he started to like his gin, brought that all back to his favorite bar in Florence and said, I'll take one of those Americano cocktails, but make it stronger, make mine with gin. And such was birthed the Negroni cocktail. Um, and now it's really popular. I find that people are asking for Negronis with agave-based spirits, uh, mezcal or tequila Negronis, especially mezcal, a little more popular. Um, so mezcal Negronis are really delicious. Experiment with your own Negroni recipe and enjoy it with Campari for a perfect cocktail creation. For more information, visit Campari.com. Please enjoy responsibly. All right, we're back on In the Drink with Adam Lee Skolner. He has an outstanding article in uh, this month's Savar called Where Does Wine Come From? Um, and it is about a, uh, a dive into the oldest wine cave in the world, deep in Armenia, um, that's over 6,100 years old. Uh, I teased it before the break with, uh, with a possible story about talking about an American who's going there. But, Adam, before we get into, into that, I do want to ask you, uh, as someone who is a fruit expert uh, or has a, at least a deep interest in, in fruit, what makes uh, grapes uh, unique and distinct from other, other fruits that, that you study and, and what, what it makes it uh, similar to other fruits? Like what sets grapes apart in the world of fruits? Yeah, why did, why did grapes become, you know, you know wine? Why did, why did we focus yeah. on grapes? Why has there been... Uh, this sort of uh, widespread, uh, why do you think there's been this kind of widespread 
devotion to winemaking uh, from grapes as opposed to, you know, uh, making, you know, could have made fermented alcoholic beverages from apples, and certainly that yes. happens in a, in a small, you know, small area. Um, but why yes. is it that grapes have sort of taken over this uh, whole uh, region, and why, you know, why are there so many books and so many winemakers? Yeah. What, what, what makes the grapes so, so unique? Okay, so it was one of the, the the questions that was so central in in my mind also while when I went there was why why is it that the grapes assumed this this epochal kind of role and why did they play such a huge uh, role in our lives and historically and so the answer is quite simple actually like why why grapes as opposed to apples or or stone fruit, you know, like peaches, apricots, whatever. They also were growing around there, and, and there there are kind of two answers. First off, like grapes get crushed easier. You know, they turn into juice in a in a simpler way, like kind of almost automatically. Like if you put a bunch of grapes together in some sort of hollow vessel, in some sort of bowl or a container or something, and you just leave them there they will kind of ferment and pop and the juices will run out and, and it'll just kind of happen. And, and the same, so, and you know, with, with, with apples or peaches or whatever, you, you, you kind of have to press them and it's a more complex sort of thing. But also, they don't generate the same amount of alcohol that grapes do. And so basically it's, it's, they're kind of like, the, they were the perfect thing. You know, the, the, the yeasts that live on, on the skins of grapes can break down the sugars producing alcohol and carbon dioxide. And that wouldn't just kind of spontaneously occur with, with apples or with, with, with pretty much any other fruit. It's, it's grapes that had that propensity. And so they, they turn into juice easily and the, the alcohol level within them is quite high. And, and it just kind of happens spontaneously. Like one of the things that I think wine lovers have have been really interested in in the past decade or two has been what's what's been called natural winemaking and if you if you look in in the Beaujolais region carbonic maceration these these wines that are made with like just the grapes kind of ferment themselves you know not much is done to it that's what like in Georgia they just put the grapes in those vessels in the ground and then this, like, they, they do their own thing, you know what I mean? They just turn into wine. Um, so that is kind of the reason why grapes, as opposed to other fruits, like, they just have that ability to become a alcoholic beverage, like a liquid, in a way that other fruits, like, it's much more complicated to do okay. with other fruits. So if someone yeah. was uh, transporting a bunch of grapes over a long distance, there's a chance at the end they might have, just from the, the transport, that might, they, they might turn into an alcoholic beverage, probably much less likely with, with another fruit. Yes, exactly. The likelihood is far greater with grapes, whether it was transporting or just, you know, there's this great passage also um, story in this book called, sorry, sorry? Or even just storing them, right? If you're just storing them. Yes, exactly. Even just storing them. There's there's this, this one great passage in this, this book called The Anatomy of Dessert, which is one of the great books about fruits, one of the great kind of historians of fruit 
Edward Bunyard, this British writer. And it, this is also something that led to me writing this article, was noticing this, this passage in his section on grapes in his book, where he says, we can picture the father of our civilization amid the stir of camp breaking, answering those who urged him to his packing. You know, they're all like hunters and gatherers ready to go. And everybody's like, all right, man, let's go. We got to go. And he's like, no, I'm staying here until this grape juice is finished. It's getting more and more tasty every day. And it's kind of a simplified idea. But actually, if you think about it, you know, if they'd set up camp and somehow these grapes had turned into juice in some sort of vessel, they would have kind of accidentally been getting drunk. And by getting drunk, they would have been saying, what is this? And they they considered fermentation and inebriation to be some kind of gift from the gods. And, you know, that's such a you know, we're going back to the beginnings of religion, and and grapes weren't the first fruit or the first thing that we used to ferment and turn into alcohol. Like, there were, you know, kind of grain alcohols and beer-type things and grogs made with broken rice and various things. But really, it goes back to the simplicity with which grapes turn into juice that started this whole thing. Makes sense. It's the most obvious thing and, and uh, the easiest. Um, yes. Uh, yes. And so, how did how did Paul Hobbs uh, get involved in Armenian wine, and in, in your article? So, so Paul Hobbs is uh, a global winemaker. He makes wine all over the world. He's based in California. He consults for a number of wineries, and he's largely associated with helping put the wines of Argentina. On, a, on, on the, I guess, the world radar in a bigger commercial way. And two Armenian brothers, the Yakubian brothers, Vikan and Vahe Yakubian, are, um, they are Armenians who were born into exile. They were born in Lebanon and kind of grew up or came of age in, in the United States and lived in California and loved Paul Hobbs's wines. And after the the dissolution of the the USSR, uh, as Armenia kind of regained its independence, there has been a number of people from the Armenian kind of exodus who have have returned home, and they are part of that movement, which is a growing movement that's gaining steam, and it hasn't really kind of, it hasn't been quick, as Paul Hobbs said this has been one of the longest cycles of any project he's been involved in. They've been working on trying to get these wines out for eight years, and their first release is only going to come out uh, next year. But, yeah, those two brothers went to Paul, and they said, you know, we'd like you to partner with us in on this project, making wines in Armenia. And so their, their winery is called Yakubian Hobbs Wines, and... We were there when I was in Armenia. Paul Hobbs was with us, and he was extremely enthusiastic about the opportunity to be making wine in the kind of cradle in the birthplace. You know, he was so kind of genuine and excited about the possibilities. And I think that he's one of the the players involved in trying to figure out this question of what Armenian wines are like. And there are a number of players and a number of people with different 
philosophies. And what's interesting is there's something for all tastes that are coming out of Armenia. Um, you know, you have very kind of big oaky stuff and kind of ripe and high alcohol. And then you also have some stuff that's a little bit more kind of trying to tap into what they call historical winemaking using amphoras, et cetera. But really what, what um, I guess typifies those Armenian wines is a sense of ruggedness and they're mountain wines, they're red mountain wines. And I think that we're going to be, it's going to be so exciting to see in the coming years as, as more of those players involved start getting their wines into market, what the, the possibilities of, of these Armenian wines are. All right, well, we'll, we'll definitely be looking out for them and, uh, uh, we'll be reporting back if there's uh, if we if we get some interesting ones here in New York. Excited for for Paul Hobbs' uh, release as well. Um, yes, and I, I don't. Know, I think you just did an outstanding job on this article. Uh, and, and kudos to Sever for for donating uh, or dedicating not donating <laughs> dedicating so many pages um, to a really in depth uh, article. That's beautifully shot, great recipes. Uh, I think you did an outstanding job. Um, thank so thank, thank, thank you, you so you much for being a guest on In the Drink. All right. Thank you for having me. You know what? I'm just going to tell you one wine to look for, just because I know that you're going to want to taste one. It's a small I am, family yes. run. I, I wasn't under the impression that, they, that they, were, they were here yet. Let's, let's look for them, for sure. <laughs> Kataro. That's your key word, Kataro. It's a small family-run winery. Try to find it. It's the one that I think is the most interesting. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and go out on the court and uh, and report back right away. So uh, thank there you, you so much. Thanks Adam. for having me. You have a great day. It's a, what a pleasure. Thank you. All right, and this has been in the drink Heritage Radio Network. Uh, tune in next uh, next Wednesday at 11 a.m. We look forward to seeing you. Then. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.